In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents... Chrissy Teigen referred to Donald Trump as a pussy-ass bitch. Look, he's a sick puppy. He, he, shouldn't be, he shouldn't be there. Well, I lost half a day of skiing. I'm going to punch him out and I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to be happy. The Betches Sub Podcast. A speaker has not been elected. Hello. Welcome to the Betches Sub Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. I am Amanda Duberman, your news director at Betches. And I'm Lily Tamaris, comedian and sub-video contributor. It's the two of us today as our, our birthday queen takes the day that she deserves. It is Elise Morales' birthday today, yes. May 15th. If you did not know, send her a DM <laughs> and say HBD. HBD, HBD, Elise, happy birthday. Did you uh, and Tino go to the party? Yes, we went to the party. I made a flan for her and I little I burnt my little fingertip <gasps> oh. doing making cuz I was like I want to taste I like made the caramel and I was like let me put, you know, like the ethical thing is to not take the spoon that you're making stuff with. So right, I poured right. so I poured it onto my finger but it was hot sugar. I'm an idiot. But it's ironic because the burn is the shape of a heart. Oh, um, it's really burnt. Like I can yeah, see it yeah. through the riverside, which is not high quality. That is crazy. Yeah, a burnt finger is such a bummer because you do famously like use your hands for a lot use of stuff. Use your hands for a lot of stuff. So I was one hand and doing a lot of things. But also I would say this this uh this weekend was crazy because I went viral on my anti-iPhone uh rant and I got like a bunch of new followers. And this one guy was like, I'd hate to hear her talk about politics. <laughs> and I'm like, well, bitch. Well, bitch. I have a politics contest twice a week. A bunch of new ones, Millie. I know. I was that's about what to I was say. Saying. I was because I've been watching. Just wait for you to because you've been so close to 10k home at 11 now. I know, Amanda. I know, and it and it's on um, all because on, of the Android. How fitting. People are so listen. People feel passionately. I did not know people felt and people and then I'm getting mentioned and this is you it's on have Twitter. A full beat in this video, like this I is know. great. I know. Ooh, well, I did it after we after a, a Guthrie's recording. I don't uh, know if you remember. I said I had a recording one day. Yeah. But um, also it's on Insta. It's on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And I'm just getting a ton of DMs and all this stuff from people who are like, I have an iPhone because my mom gave me one, and I'm like, mm, I don't care. But anyway, I don't know. Just it going was crazy. viral is is a trip. Like a it's lot happens. Such a trip. Yeah, I remember iconically like, when Elise said before taking off on a flight, like I don't know, maybe something about kids in a flight, and landed, and it was like she. It was like she was that other woman that, that said the woman, thing about AIDS. her name was like yeah. Justine or something. Oh yeah, man, I remember that woman? Uh, she said something about like AIDS. Hope I don't when get she AIDS. was going to Afri South Africa when she landed, she was fired. There yeah. were eighteen thousand think pieces on her. It was crazy. It was peak internet, and we will return to discussing a peak internet mm -hmm. a bit later today. But today's number, today's number we will start with is 2,325. That is the number of people named Kyle who need to assemble at Lake Kyle Park in Kyle, Texas later this month to beat the record for largest same name gathering. Can you tell yet it is a slow news day? <laughs> I mean, thank God. <laughs> I know. We've a lot of fast news days. Gosh, it's been a while since we've, I mean, there definitely were mass shootings over the weekend because a mass oh, shooting Jesus. is anything over four people, but Yeah. Just right now, the Kyles, the Kyles are trying to get together because the name that they have to beat, the guys that have done this before, are the Ivans. There are cities in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina that gathered that number of people named Ivan, setting the previous world record in 2017. I just feel like you probably have the same thought I do, which is that like there have got to like isn't the there has got to have been two thousand Muhammads in the same place at once. I just maybe the maybe the record is based on the explicit purpose of the gathering mm. is for Kyle's and people of the same name to come together. I feel like 
I feel like mats. There has to be a place where two... If you go to a football game, there <laughs> are 2,000 mats there. And I'm also saying this because I I have like three Matt ex-boyfriends. Right. You go to a Dave Matthews con- concert. <laughs> They're all named Dave The Michaels Matthews. are there. <laughs> the Michaels. Oh, my God. My, yeah, Michaels, Matt's, mm-hmm. John's. <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't buy it. But what do you think? Um, what do you think the vibe is at a gathering of two thousand Kyles? Do you want to go there or no? No you know, offense. It's like, it's like that meme. I know it smells crazy in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, what are they catering? Um, well, yeah, cat- no Chipotle. Yeah, yeah, they're eating Chipotle. Um, yeah, but neighbor- they're getting a keto bowl. My next door neighbor is named Kyle, but it's with an H. K-H-Y, I think something like that. And I'm just wondering if, like, but what if Kyle from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills exactly. is there? Like, What if is she it- is there with <laughs> Kyle Rittenhouse? And with Kyle Rittenhouse. No. Hey, we know Kyle Rittenhouse loves to cross state lines. <laughs> <laughs> Millie. <laughs> he will be there. He will be. So honestly... Honestly, if I found out he was going and I was like a Kyle and I was like, hey, you guys want I'd be, I don't know that guy that, that likes to just randomly shoot other white people. So, well, maybe he should maybe he should stick this one out. But I, I guess I, I guess I hope they do it. What do you think a gathering of 2000 millies would be like? Well, <clears throat> better. my name on the outline spelled incorrect. Well, I, like, well, I know I was trying to do it um, as a. I was trying to do it as a plurals, but also everybody misspells your name that way. So sometimes I incept it. I'm like, it's literally um, everywhere. It's on Slack. You know, Millie's a nickname that a lot of people use. So I feel- Your mom would be there, right? My mom would be there. I feel like a lot of people who's Millie, or it would be a lot of dogs. You know how many people are like- (laughs) I didn't want to say that. (laughs) It would be. People are like, my dog's name is Millie. And I'm like, okay, what do I do with that information? But then someone, a new follower was like, I love you. You're amazing. And I'm like, my dog has your name, Valentina. I was going to say Amanda. 2000 Amanda's, that's just a Taylor Swift concert. That is a two, that is a Taylor Swift concert in every city. Yeah, that's every yeah, city. that's that's Orchestra Center. That's orca that's the what is it the pit? What do they call that? It's just it's the pit. Yeah, I'm finna yeah. be in the pit with the other Amandas well, that were born in 1989 and are the oldest daughters. Yeah, exactly. Well, cuz in like in the Bad Bunny concert, it's called so the pit or whatever the orchestra seating in Bad Bunny is called La Playa and mm-hmm. Beyonce's concert the like orchestra shooting is called Club Renaissance. So in Taylor Swift's concert it's mm-hmm. called just it's the Amandas. Amandas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, truly. Like on Lost Culture they have the Katies. The I K- think for <laughs> us it, it is the Amandas. It's the Amandas and the Samanthas, which is fitting. The Samanthas. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, yes. All right. Before we get on to main news, we have a couple of housekeeping notes. Number one, pretty please review the podcast. You know, it's getting to summer and some people fall off their news game, but stick with us. We're going to keep it loose. We'll keep it fun when we can. And it really is the way that our podcast surfaces into people's views. So when people want to listen to new podcasts, like they're looking around, they're po- they're listening to their friends, they're poking around iTunes or Spotify and looking for things that are promoted there and things that look cool. We are going to freshen up our look. We know mm-hmm. that's our job and that is coming. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. But, um, you know, you guys have such amazing, sweet things to say to us in, in the voicemails that like I'm sure most of you have also left reviews, but just in case, put it on paper too and uh, leave us a review and a rating so that people know they have proof of concept and they know to listen yeah. to the pod. And keep leaving voicemails. We yes, love the voicemails. exactly. We have um we have a better process now. I just need to learn to delegate sometimes. Where I yeah. was like, oh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And finally, this week, I was like, I'm not getting to it. Bridget, can you please handle this? She was like, yes, I've been waiting for you to tell me. To yes, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I'm sure I know people have been calling in, and yes, definitely, the people want to get on the the town hall. The I group know chat. it's coming. So we will do that every Thursday. One more housekeeping note for today. Last week, I told you about the care is not a crime benefit featuring John Oliver and Olivia Julian in New York City next week. If you don't know Olivia Juliana by name, she is the amazing young woman who raised like $2 million for reproductive mm-hmm. rights when Matt Gates was just calling her out. So this benefit is going to honor the incredible doctors that work on the front lines and are providing care. And it's also going to raise money for reproductive rights advocacy. The group is called Physicians for Reproductive Health. We encourage you to buy tickets to the live stream as an alternative to purchasing an in-person ticket. But I have some news. What if I told you that you could do both? You could buy a live stream ticket for $13 and go to a fancy party with us next week. Millie and I are going. 
So is Elise. That's the plan. We got a table. And one person who buys a ticket at the link prh.org slash giveaway will be entered to win two tickets to the in-person event in New York City. Don't have the exact – it's, you know, unfortunately with these things, when you're talking about a sensitive subject, you will get the address when you RSVP. (laughs) But it is in New York City, I would guess, around midtime at Midtown. And if you just buy a $13 ticket, you will have a chance to come. Um, And it will be John Oliver. It's going to be a really incredible night of a lot of advocates and people on the front lines and just like a fancy party and a reason to dress up. Like – who doesn't want that? Yeah, I just it just hit me like, yeah, <laughs> they cannot publish the address of a place <laughs> of a bunch of abortion doctors yeah. ahead of time. But guess what? But it's, it's gonna still going to be, gonna be so a vibe. fun. It's going to be so fun. I'm going to be there. Amanda's going to be there. John Oliver's going to be, be there. John Oliver's going to be there. I think Becca's going to be there. Uh, She's our producer. Yeah, hopefully their alcohol is going to be there. <laughs> Absolutely, alcohol is going to be there. Alcohol has to be there. And we'll yeah, make some content. We'll make some content. And the so, worst case scenario, you donated $13 to this cause. So again, that link is prh.org slash giveaway. You have to order by Thursday at midnight, and then they'll select the winner uh, later this week. So you know you have the weekend to like pick out an outfit or whatever. Um, prh.org slash giveaway. We will also put that link on our stories. Don't use the link in our newsletter because that was the wrong one. But if you accidentally clicked on that one and bought a ticket today, we're going to reach out to you and make sure that you're still entered. But the link that you should use is the one linked in our stories, prh.org slash giveaway. Or like, you know, just DM one of us, uh, DM me, I'll send you the link. We'll get you entered. Uh, Or just jot it down right now into your browser, not if you're driving, prh.org slash giveaway. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. All right, finally, we are on to our main news. So the main news in politics today is mainly the debt limit and Title 42. I interviewed an expert um, on the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, she's an expert on the subject of the U.S.-Mexico border. I did not go to the U.S.-Mexico border to interview her (laughs) this morning, and we'll add that interview to the end of the podcast. Her name is Colleen, and she had a ton of insight to share about how this pretty significant change will play out practically. And we also just sort of talked about the need for better immigration policy overall. Uh, She said, you know, 
what she said that stood out to me is that we're using an immigration system designed mainly for single men coming up from Mexico. That's you know really the last time we updated our immigration policies. And as you all know from images and just hearing from people, that is not primarily who's coming. Families are coming, and people are coming actually from all over the world mm-hmm. through the southern border. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of shit going on in the world. Um, so there's a lot more to it, and there are a lot of challenges. But um, we talked about you know how the administration has prepared and just how to have a better conversation and how to fix this moving forward. So that'll come at the end of today's episode. The other main news story today is the debt limit, which does not generally have a comedic angle. So it's hard for us to discuss on our comedy politics podcast. But we've been in a bit of a holding pattern for a few months now, with Janet Yellen telling everyone she can find that the global economy will collapse if Congress doesn't act to raise the debt limit. I read last week that she was like calling CEOs. I just imagine her like at the grocery store. Just like, don't you know, we're going to run out of money. But but she she seems her mood appears to have brightened. She said over the weekend that after hearing about some negotiations, that she was hopeful that we might come to an agreement. She has said that we have until June 1st to raise this debt limit. Republicans in Congress have insisted that they won't sign any legislation that raises the debt limit unless it includes spending cuts that no Democrat would really tolerate. Democrats are in the majority in the Senate and in the White House, the only person in the White House. So these bills would be dead on arrival. Joe, Mitch, Kevin, Chuck, and Hakeem have spent some time trying to come to an agreement before that June date. And it sounds like the ultimate deal, you know, might have some sort of spending cuts. I was reading about them this morning and they sounded pretty wonky. We will obviously update you on anything super alarming, but that's that's just sort of continues to be chugging along. But one thing that I've been telling myself is that like it's really our money, which is the reason we mm-hmm. haven't even hit this yet, because we had to pay taxes and a lot of people owed taxes. So just, you know, if you're feeling not very useful. If you owed taxes last month, you are probably helping stabilize the global economy. So thank you. Well, not me because I have to pay it, but <laughs> oh, no. I have to pay my taxes. Listen, you got to stabilize your own economy first. I know. God damn. How many 1099s do you think Millie Tamara oh, got God. last year? Jesus. <laughs> I would say the numbers in between 10 and, and probably 16. So, <laughs> and the uh, fact easy that peasy. I don't know is, yeah. uh, is a challenge. If any of Millie's new followers know any good <laughs> Android tax apps. <laughs> I know. It just kind of sucks because it's over and over again, the Republican strategy hinges on the consistency and the reliability that Democrats will do the right thing and not, you know, not be calculating on like how it looks good for them, which is why we love the Democrats and we vote Democrat and all that. But ultimately, um, it, it just allows for instability and, and things like this to happen is because Republicans will push and push and say, like, we're not signing this shit unless you cut all of Medicaid or unless you cancel schools or <laughs> whatever, or like no hospital for women can ever exist. And then Democrats are like, mm, we're not signing that. And it goes back and forth. And then finally, Republicans are like, Ugh, fine, you know, but like they bet on that, you know, which sucks because it's like we could actually get a lot more done if republicans operated in the with the assumption of like we want government to function and we want to like not have like not use fear as a overall political strategy but they yeah. don't do that so like a lot of this debt ceiling talk has been kind of unnecessary it's our again it's our money they knew it was going to happen a lot of this is ramifications for the 2017 the Trump tax, tax cuts yes, the Trump good tax point. cuts like Everyone knew this was going to happen, but it just so happens that the manifestation of these, uh, the debt ceiling limit is happening while Democrats are in power. So Republicans are dragging their feet, making it look like it's a Democrat fault and like, oh, Democrats don't know how to run government. Mm -hmm. When again, this is a result of the 2017 tax cut. And it's just like, just like with the stimulus and we've seen it over and over again, where, yeah, Republicans, they will use anything they can to make it look like Democrats can't run, like run a country properly when really like these, these people don't have any policy except let's cut any, every social net that like helps people in a time where like rent has gone up and like, we actually do need social now more than ever now more in than- <laughs> unprecedented times. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, not only like, do they know that Democrats will ultimately do the right thing, but right now, you know, 
a lot of voters and a lot of people are just like relatively low information because like they don't have the time. And yeah. a lot of people like were something to happen where like I just Democrats would never let it happen, but were something to happen where we did default and 3 million people lost their jobs. People aren't blaming Republicans. We're yeah. going to have Donald Trump as president again. Absolutely. Like they're going to blame Joe Biden. People blame people like our the way our system is is not as direct democracy as people think and they tend to blame the most powerful person even though you know in this case it would not be joe biden's fault but again they will probably like i like i said i was reading this morning that there are some you know they're talking about cuts to like medicaid and then joe's like of what course. the fuck i would never cut medicaid so you know it sounds like when honestly when i hear janet yellen be like oh i'm hopeful about negotiations and we still have two weeks. I'm honestly like, what are you giving away, Joe? But that's why, you know, we'll 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 flag those as those come up. But it's definitely going, there's going to have to be some like Republicans aren't gonna accept a clean debt ceiling. No, because they're yeah. fucking evil. Uh, um <laughs> I mean, I said it. Yeah. Um, would you say a good analogy for this is because this is something I'm thinking about. I'm like, what is a good analogy for this? Is it like somebody is like, I'm running out of money. I'm so broke, but they have a, a millionaire parent, like millionaire parents that can lend them money at any time. Or like yes. they have a say, cause I, or I know people like this. I'm, I'm, I'm not like this. Obviously I owe money to, to the IRS, <laughs> which I have to handle, but it's like, Oh man, like I'm so broke. I have no money. I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent next month. And they have $50,000 in savings. It's sort like, of, yeah, I think it's honestly more like, a person who has extremely good credit. Maybe they don't yes. have all the money in the world, yes, but yes, you yes. you have always had access to wealth and you've paid your bills. So you have very, very good credit. So it's like basically the United States right now is refusing to use a credit card that we have an unlimited amount on with exactly. a very low interest rate. So it's like it's like the person with the biggest credit limit and and being like, I refuse to pay for the Airbnb until they're literally like, we're going to sleep on the streets. Yeah, Even though it's like yeah. you have a fifty thousand dollars limit. What are you talking about? Like, use exactly. the fucking credit card, or else exactly. what? What is what is the point? Whereas yes. then, if you don't, yeah, we're all screwed. Yeah, we're sleeping on the street. Great, great analogy for <laughs> the sub listeners. Welcome who to the Veg Sub Podcast. Yeah. Yes, the, for the high, high interest credit card debt <laughs> yeah. and high information. We know you'll get it because that's what yes. I was thinking. I was like, whatever, but it's true. Yeah, with like. Okay, we need to put money down on this thing. Yeah, that's what I said. It's like use the credit card. Like sometimes, sometimes even if you're wealthy, it is smarter to take out a loan to finance something. It doesn't always mean you don't have it doesn't always mean it's a bad, it's a bad financial or irresponsible financial decision. It it just is the smartest one kind of at the time. Well, also, I mean to to achieve what you need to achieve. To achieve what you need to achieve. And it's also like that's kind of what credit cards are for. Mm -hmm. Um it's for those moments. Nobody buys a house like in cash. We, yeah, exactly. Except for the randos on Selling Sunset that you never see. Well, yeah, those are. And if they're single. Let yeah. Me <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And if they're single, holler at me, please. Oh, Pay all my right. tax bill. Sprinkle, sprinkle. Speaking <laughs> of single men, let's talk about Vice News. <laughs> Finally. Sorry, sorry. Tough day. Finally, for the main news today, Vice has filed for bankruptcy. Don't worry. Not celebrating this. Just a little joke. The digital media darling has had definitely a tough few years despite a $5.7 billion valuation in 2016. They have definitely had a lot of money pumped into them. It's filing for bankruptcy so that it can be required, acquired by its lenders. And George Soros's group is apparently one of those interested in acquiring it. So it seems likely that Vice Media will continue to exist in some fashion, but definitely in a fundamentally different one than its heyday. It's already shut down some of its big kind of signature things like Vice News Tonight. But this this bankruptcy in particular kind of comes amid a series of shutterings that would be very dizzying to the 2014 version of me who gets their news. My mm -hmm. RSS feed would be wiped. BuzzFeed News and MTV News have both shut down. You know, they both had in-depth reporting and a lot of identity-related coverage. They definitely invested in a lot of content. Uh, HuffPost is owned by BuzzFeed. I hear it gets – I used to work there. They even laid me off, but I'll hype them. They they kind of get – because that's the problem with media. They kind of get buried like, oh, there's no more HuffPost. There's no more BuzzFeed News. But HuffPost is alive and well. It's up mm -hmm. and running. It has a very strong reporting arm still. That's always been the strongest team. And they are working very, very hard and getting scoops and doing very important reporting. So they're still there. As are the folks at Jezebel. We were talking last week. Like Ben Smith wrote a weird article column in the New York Times about how Jezebel kind of like discovered the – 
kind of like developed the voicey relationship that you have with your audience in sort of like a retrospective way. But Jezebel has had a bit of a resurgence. They have a great editor. They have a great team of writers. Mm -hmm. They're still getting scoops. So that stuff is sort of still around. But we've definitely heard a lot of like end of an era talk uh, in the media world. You know, Gawker has shut down more broadly. All of these websites on them, you know, it used to be very easy to get viral traffic on a website article from these places. If you just slapped a clickbaity headline on it. I mean, when I worked at HuffPost, you could just get so much traffic on Facebook. Everyone was Mm -hmm. sharing things at like a dizzying rate as people were learning (laughs) more about identity politics. Kind of, I mean, yeah, you were kind of in this world too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of like, you know, I'm a... (laughs) I'm a very specific identity in this very specific context. Like, Mm -hmm. here's what it's like. Or it was really when, you know, it was like when Taylor Swift said feminism, I'm a feminist, and suddenly everybody was saying feminist. And just the traffic you were getting on these media sites was pretty, pretty high. And, you know, they got invested in and they invested in accordingly. But constant changes and algorithms and the quality of platforms like Facebook and Twitter have really changed how a lot of people get their news. If you think about it, you know, you're not really going to a lot of places where you can easily get a link. We link to things on Instagram, but when Mm -hmm. you're kind of tapping through stories, you kind of just want to stay on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I feel like there used to be a lot more of like a monoculture around news. Like every day there was like the bloggy, buzzy story. Maybe it was Mm -hmm. a scoop or maybe it was a first person thing. That Mm -hmm. still happens. You know, New York Magazine, whenever they publish a big feature, that's definitely the buzzy story of the day. But I think a lot of this kind of cultural conversation and media diet comes a lot more from curators now, you know, mm-hmm. people like Evan Ross Katz and St. Hoax and like like Betches that kind of curate a vibe around the news and help you kind of unpack it. Um, you know, there are newsletter writers that make a lot of money and that's how they make their living, just sending out newsletters where they curate links. There are TikTokers that are delivering the news. Um So, you know, why exactly these news publishers that we're talking about seem to have failed? We'll kind of get into that. But first, Millie, why do you think that people are referring to this as an end, the end of an era? What kind of era, what does that era look like to you and what's, what marks its end? Yeah, there's a lot of things that are contributing to this, but I feel like the era is definitely like people, instead of going on Facebook and looking at a curated thing of news they would go on buzzfeed.com yeah and then buzzfeed would get advertisers directly and then that's how they were able to sustain things and then with facebook they they made it so you had to pay to play you had to pay to get views on your Mm -hmm. stuff so that makes the money that that would be coming in normally they're getting a, a small small portion of like the ads they used to and they still have to put in money with Facebook and then Facebook and then with with the clicky headlines like you were saying I mean that was the comedy example but like with with articles it was also the same thing with articles where people would have to pay to get their things seen and what happens and so so what would happen is to adjust to this people would do a really spicy headline but then the article would be fairly researched and like well done and made by somebody kind of ethically, even though the headline would be, you know, whatever. And over time, what happened, I mean, this was a big move in around 2016, 2015 was the pivot to video, which is something that a lot of people like have trauma around where yeah. Facebook is like, we're not, we're going to actually prioritize videos. So if you have like written links, we're not going to, people are not going to see them. So right. everybody would fight, like that was a big move of layoffs where everyone would like, lay off the reporters and then have video people. So what's happening now with AI is instead of having somebody like create a spicy headline and have a well-researched piece, what's happening is BuzzFeed now can literally look up what are people clicking today and this and that and make the most search engine optimized headline and then just have an AI thing, you know, like copy and paste information or put in a picture of Tom Cruise on a red carpet and then have the most SEO bullshitty headline with a a nonsensical article. And it doesn't really matter if the article is good or not. Mm -hmm. It's just that if people are clicking on it. So that's kind of what's happening. Like the era has transitioned from somewhere where people like go directly to the site to get their information to a curated social media channel that these places have to pay to play 
to now we've transitioned to this area. I mean, and that's just like the news thing. When we want to start talking about investments and buyers and all of that, that's another thing that killed media. And then we can talk about how this contributes to the striking or whatever. Mm -hmm. But those are the eras and that's what um, is happening now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eras tour. Taylor Swift. <laughs> exactly. And the only thing I would add to that is just that the reason you needed to get people to your website constantly is because that was really the only way you were making money is from ad revenue mm-hmm. on the website. I mean, now media companies, obviously I will hype Betches, which is a great example, has a very, very diverse, we have very diverse revenue streams and it always has as it's grown. Whereas like if you were only relying on ad revenue on a website, that's that's where people ran into issues because then people are getting their most of their news from social media. You don't, you didn't have an infrastructure to sell ads on social media or to create, you know, like if you didn't already have merch or you didn't already have podcasts. So mm. I think, I think the, the media companies, or if you don't have a loyal enough audience to, you know, who are going to pay for your content or you're not providing enough value for, that your audience is going to pay. And if you were creating, if you were really kind of like a content farm, like those things, Millie, we're talking about, you know, like you said, like you ever, you click on a daily mail article and a lot of outlets like that, and you realize you've read the same paragraph eight times. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's written for SEO. Nothing about it is trying to go for quality. They're just trying to keep you on, on the website. And, you know, the, the outlets that I guess didn't offer, didn't offer alternatives. And plus like, this is expensive. Good journalism is, is expensive. Good personal mm-hmm. essays are expensive. They should be. I, one thing I really did not enjoy about my last job at HuffPost before I got laid off, and I probably got laid off because I kept saying I don't like this, was that it was just really intense trauma dumping, yeah. just paying people a little bit of money to, to to write about the worst thing that ever happened to them. But let's slap on, you know, like you said, a spicy headline to get people in the door and know about the worst thing that's ever happened to this person. Um, and like you said, with the funding you know, if you accept, if you accept funding at your company, then you, you know, you have to say yes to people's suggestions or you have to indulge them. And so sometimes that meant pivots that didn't necessarily make the most sense. So I think the sort of switch is that now the people that are having success and the people in media that are making real money, like there are people making real money from their newsletters, making Mm -hmm. real money uh, from their podcasts, making real money from TikTok, like Mm -hmm. from those, you know, but that's, that's a totally different business model. And it's It's not one that like most, yeah. And it's individual based, it's personality based. I think that sort of, the pivot when I think about like, because I also used to get, you know, these bigger publishers are probably seeing huge traffic drops, you know, like your NBCs, your AP News is because of Twitter. Nobody's on Twitter anymore. So mm-hmm. you're going to probably see more layoffs there. I mean, the big issue is that if you're just a web, if you're a website and you, the main thing you make, the main thing you make is articles with a link. It's getting increasingly harder to get, like, where are people t- where you can get that link in front of them, for, mm-hmm. where they can even click it and get to your site. And if you, there's nowhere for you to do that, then you have to put it somewhere else, whether it's in a podcast or on a Instagram you can charge money for. But they just I just think none of these places had a diverse enough revenue model. I mean, you didn't think that you had to. Newspaper News has always been ad-driven. Well, also, like, and this is a big criticism of Facebook, was that Facebook would put um articles that were heavily researched and have like people with journalistic integrity in the same category as really incendiary misinformation and all that stuff and would prioritize the things that would get people to stay on Facebook more or get people to engage more and that's not necessarily like when you're talking about good journalism is expensive like good journalism also provides nuance or shows like you know, many layers and takes mm-hmm. a lot of months. And, and that's not, um, that's not necessarily what's the best for Facebook or any of these social media categories that want yeah. people to be mad, that want people to, um, be misinformed, that want people to fight online, that want people to come back and, 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 um, engage more. That's not, you know, and I mean, I think there's a lot of things that ultimately, and it was it's actually a little traumatic because that's what last night's episode of Succession was about. Is like, yeah, what's the incendiary shit that we can get or like lie to people that will make us more money? And that's what's so cynical about it. And then yeah, when you start talking about, I mean, investor, or yeah, like um, there are people who are able to make a lot of money, but it, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best, most researched content totally. or this and that. You know, I I recently watched She Said, um, you know, and that's the thing of like the Me Too, the in New York Times Me Too, um, the way that that article came together. And it was multiple people over a long period of time or this and that. But if you have, you know, 
people like Matthew Iglesias, who, whatever, who's making a substack, like, he's not getting opposing points or very rarely, like, talking to to firsthand, whatever. And this man's making millions of dollars on his substack, as opposed to going through New York Mags or New York Times or BuzzFeed News, who, as, as clickbaity as BuzzFeed is, we're talking about the BuzzFeed News portion, which one of my favorite articles, they're the ones who really broke the, I mean, they didn't break the R. Kelly stuff, but they talked, I mean, they they brought a new legitimacy mm-hmm. to like him facing consequences today. And they spent a long, long time talking about this cop who falsely accused many Latino people in Chicago. Like they have these long-term, really great articles. And it's just sad to see that like this era is over. And then it's another conversation about Kind of how technology has changed industries and you have to adapt, but you also have to like, you know, mm-hmm. this is literally so related to the WGA strike, which right. is what we're talking about, which is literally um, we've seen the profession of journalism and being a journalist go from this really sustainable career that you can build and work at the same paper for years and years and years to technology and streaming and making it like to the reality now where it's a gig job. It's a job that you have to work many jobs to do and you're never going to do it properly if you're working many, many jobs or, you know, you can, but it's just, it's just 80 times harder. And, you know, as a comedian and, you know, and I'm sure Amanda, you can, you know, it's very hard to get like a full-time job doing something. It's very hard for a journalist now to get a full-time job in anything. Um, and when you're juggling three or four different gigs, like it's just difficult. And that's what's happening right now with writing. And that's why people are protesting to stop it. Cause that's what's going on. Yeah. And as you've been talking, I've been reflecting more on the point I made before about how a lot of individuals are growing and you made an important point, which is that like, you know, they don't, those individuals, a lot of them are doing a great job, but they don't all have an editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't, you know, they are out for themselves if they're supporting themselves individually and, you know, Sometimes that might mean cutting corners. Like I just I see content creators that are in the news realm and I don't like the way they cover the news and I know mm-hmm. they do it because it's um it'll get more engagement. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, if I worked for myself versus at a company, I would be incentivized by that whereas like I'm very free here to sort of we we post what we think is valuable. So yeah, it's an important conversation. It's like mm-hmm. it it does feel empowering that things people are getting their news from individuals that they trust, but those individuals, you know, they're not, they, they need to buy their own healthcare every month. They don't have mm-hmm. the security of like a, a media company. And that's mm-hmm. definitely like an era that's kind of um, behind us. I think Ben Smith, even though I didn't like his take on acting like Jezebel was over, I think he wrote a book about this that's out um, this week called Traffic um, about this era and everything that went wrong. He's one of the founders of, of BuzzFeed News. So I hope he has some self-reflection. <laughs> they also did have some good pod- pod- podcasts. Did you ever listen to another round? Um, no, but I, I'm that got me into podcasts and I think they like held that podcast hostage for a while, but it just is like, if, if they had just invested in their podcast talent, like seven years ago, uh, maybe they wouldn't have had such a hard time catching up, but you know, read, click your links. If you like websites, even if you're like, that sounds boring, click the link, click the yeah, link. It really, I can't tell link. you how much it helps just to click our links. Everybody's link. Just click the link. Click the link. And like, yeah, it's really about supporting because as we're seeing with Twitter, even though all these people and even though all these like companies have had now have to adjust their their strategy to accommodate going through social media, we can see through Twitter one asshole can ruin the platform and ruin like revenue streams. So the most important thing you can do as a consumer, you have so much power, is to continue to support people and and, and organizations that f- cover things that you like. And, you know, I think everyone, because if you're going through Twitter or whatever, like it's at the whims of some asshole and Facebook and Instagram and all of that is the whims of some asshole. If you follow Amanda, me, Betches, Betches up, you know, New Yorker, Jezebel, you're, you're supporting the people who actually, whatever. So that's what I'll say. with And that's what like. I've talked to uh, Vise Behar about this from Under the Desk News. You know, they have like three or four million followers on TikTok, but, you know, also make sure to support their podcast because if TikTok goes away tomorrow, like, you yeah. know, that's why you see people diversifying uh, so much. And it's important that you also consume that content because it's for a strategic reason, because at any time, you know, your main platform might just evaporate. Mm-hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, finally today, some people are mad at Joe Biden. There was just some language here that was so funny to me. President Biden denounced white supremacy this weekend as the most dangerous terrorist threat to the nation, and he did so during a commencement address to students at Howard University. He added, and I'm not just saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. I say this wherever I go. I like how he said black HBCU, kind of like saying chai tea. Yeah, it's like saying chai tea. (laughs) It's cute. It's like Mrs. Senora, Mrs. Senora Duberman. Right. (laughs) Would you believe it? Millie, if I told you that conservative pundits reacted to the story by accusing Biden of stoking division and racial tensions. One person called him the divider in chief. It was just a lot of people saying like, why? How can you always turn us against each other? And it's like, bro said white supremacy. It's like, are th- would these people call, like call division if if they call division over anything? Like you can't speak out like sometimes we should we should stoke division between us and fascists. Um, well, I think they're really nostalgic over the good old days of Donald Trump when he said things about fascists and and white supremacists and said there are very good people on both sides. And that really was what brought America together. Uh, it just might have. It just might have. And then another, they also took notice of this quote about Katanji Brown Jackson. Joe Biden said, with your voices and votes, I was able to fulfill my commitment to put the first black woman on the Supreme Court of the United States. And then he said, and by the way, she is brighter than the rest. She is one bright woman. I mean, isn't that kind of a fact that she has the most? That's true. She's literally the most. The most yeah. court experience than anyone that's probably ever um been fucking in the supreme court well republicans court. didn't like that i guess they didn't think it was fair they think everybody should get a trophy they don't yeah they're crazy they're like crazy. you can't even i want you to make this last point so i can well the I, last point is just like you know this was definitely it was a commencement address but it had campaign speech you know energy he went on to connect many of his first term victories to the very strong turnout among black americans that put him in the white house to begin with so this was very much a i've just announced my candidacy congratulations please help me again i mean it's true (laughs) i mean joe biden and like black people have consistently loved joe biden from when he started they you know people remember that he was super supportive with obama And, um, you know, again, and like black, I think that this is something that a lot of people, um, you know, forget or, or whatever is that like black people aren't the, you know, a lot of the black people in the, especially in the Southern States, you know, they, they appreciate a more moderate candidate because they also know that, you know, people Anyway, it's it's a whole thing about the 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 pack. But I guess for me, yeah. something that I saw this was really interesting. Uh, a, you know, when you said when I read the headline, some people are mad at Joe Biden. I was thinking about a conversation on Black Twitter that they were having, where it's like he's like, I'm not just saying the white, uh, where he was just saying all this stuff about white supremacy and white things, and, and people were like, he doesn't say this at <laughs> when he goes yeah, to white totally. colleges. He is only That's talking absolutely, about I had that thought too. That's He doesn't say that everywhere he goes. I would he love doesn't. if he went to the coffee shop and he was like, white supremacy is the biggest threat to our democracy. But this he doesn't. man doesn't even say abortion. You know what I mean? And I, I mean, know. to his credit, like, I, you know, it's like the good thing and the bad thing or the, you know, what is someone's best quality is almost always someone's like, not worst quality, but, you know, a challenging quality. And it's like the best quality is like he knows who his audience is. He will go with whoever's in front of him and he'll really. But again, like he's not going to take a radical stance in front of whatever. So it's just like, yeah, why are you saying this at a black HBC? Yeah, he doesn't say HBC. that to Mitch McConnell. Like or, you don't say that wherever you or go. He's not saying that in a fucking like conservative college you know but anyway yeah so that was really interesting but also like you know republicans 
they can fucking cry about it. They're the ones who are always <laughs> talking about facts don't care about your feelings and also like snowflakes and all this shit. They're always the one that's talking about it. They're the fucking snowflakes. Like you can't hear about how a black woman, like this is just fact. Kentaji Brown Jackson, Amy Coney Barrett never. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think fucking- I read, I think I read that, um, like they raised enough money to, to, to free Daniel Penny, the guy who killed Jordan Neely. Oh, so he didn't have to sit in jail. Do- a million bucks in like five minutes. And uh, uh, not that much has been raised to support Jordan Neely's family. The last thing that I've read was that they raised over like a million point five, close to two. Disgusting. To, to, for Daniel Penny. And they raised about $86,000 for Jordan Neely's like family for it to pay for his funeral. So, and I, again, this is, this is the guy who choked somebody for 15 minutes. So the choker get, you know, and killed somebody. So the murderer gets 50, you know, $1.5 million. And, um, the, the person who's murdered his family gets yes. 86,000. And there it's is just, more money there to support white supremacy than there is always, to dismantle I mean, that, it. That Joe's right about that. Yeah. Joe's, Joe is right about that. It's not as investigated. It's not investigated as as carefully as other things, which I talked about. The fact that we're going to a reproductive rights thing and we don't know the address, <laughs> that is because you, it's not. Of white supremacy. Yeah, that's white supremacy. Yeah. Dr. Um, Tiller was in this group that's holding, you know, they don't fuck around. They don't fuck around. And also the fact, you know, this always happens. The guy who murdered Michael Brown made a ton of money. George Zimmerman sold Kyle Rittenhouse. Fuck- yeah, to close Kyle the loop. Rittenhouse, the, yeah, <laughs> close the loop. He, he you know, um, the guy who murdered um, fucking T- Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman, sold the gun, auctioned the gun out. And that's all white supremacy. So mm-hmm. um, it is true that's the most dangerous ter- terrorist threat. And I think that's really great. It's just kind of like, on one end, it's like, it's great that he's addressing this and it's important, but it's also just like, on my graduation day where I've worked really hard as a black student in America, I don't want to hear about what, like, it's still white supremacy <laughs> no, totally. to, talk, yeah, to hear yeah. about that at your, on your, on the day that's supposed to celebrate your, you know, so it is like you were on the nose of like, this is Joe Biden campaign strategy, not Joe Biden, like, which, you know, whatever. I mean, that they should know that that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that Joe Biden talked and not fucking Kamala Harris who graduated from Howard. Yeah. So interesting, interesting moves, but well, there's still one more graduating class between now and the 2024 election. So uh, maybe she'll be there. Maybe she'll speak next year. Maybe she did make a statement that people were laughing at over the weekend. Did you see? Yeah, (laughs) it was tough. You know, know, sometimes we're not all at our best on Sunday mornings. I can't put a sentence together. (laughs) You know what? Just let Kamala be. Exactly. She's going to be our new president. So. <laughs> Joey going to Let her be loose for a while. She going to be right. loose. She yeah. can tighten it up when she needs to. Exactly. Exactly. The woman is fine. <laughs> that is it for us for now. But please stick around for my interview with Colleen Putzel-Kavanaugh of the Migration Policy Institute. Now I am joined by Colleen Putzel-Kavanaugh, a research assistant with the Migration Policy Institute to talk to us about the end of Title 42 and overall kind of the state of immigration policy. So just just small, small, narrow issues today. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Amanda. Absolutely. So, you know, we've talked to our audience pretty broadly about Title 42 and it ending, but I would love to hear from you. I know it's super broadly, just so our listeners can hear it from you, the full context. What happened last week with the end of Title 42? And then onto that, what immediate changes were implemented at the border, the southern border? Sure. So Title 42 came to an end and um, Customs and Border Protection had to go back to processing people completely under Title 8. So Title 8 was always there. It was always an option. Uh, but now uh, that is the the only the only option is to process people under Title 8 rather than under Title 42. Uh, and then there were also some new changes that came with that. So uh, the Biden administration started a new uh, final rule um, that puts this presumption of ineligibility on um, on some asylum seekers. So those who are encountered passing between ports of entry uh, will be considered ineligible for asylum if they don't apply for asylum in another country uh, that they had passed through. Uh, and then 
people must use the CBP1 app. Um, that's been around for, for quite a while, but people must use that CBP1 app to get an appointment to enter and be processed at a port of entry. And then once they're processed and in the interior, they could then um, apply for asylum. And then there were a few other changes that sort of came with that. Um, I think that the intention of the administration was to add some legal pathways with, with obviously a, a much harsher sort of deterrence rule. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some ways that the administration was starting to prepare. How else did the Biden administration prepare for the end of Title 42? This administration, like many others, has been criticized for lack of preparation when things get intense at the border. So what did, in your view, what preparations were made this time to um, you know, make this process as smooth as possible or as bearable and humane as possible? Right. So there was, of course, the, the new rule. They knew that there were large numbers of people. There have been large numbers of people at the U.S.-Mexico border for the last several years. Um, and then there was also resourcing and expanding capacity. Um, so some of that resourcing was sending contractors, um, additional U.S. troops to the border, people to sort of help with some of the administrative needs that come with processing large numbers of people. Um, there was also the building up of foreign relations. Um, we've heard about the administration uh, wanting to start these regional processing centers in Guatemala and Colombia. Um, and then I, I think that really the, the MVPs of this um, preparation were really the border communities. Um, they were the people that really needed to get supplies, uh, whether that be clothing and food medical supplies, uh, make sure that they had enough beds. Uh, they knew that they were going to have larger numbers of people passing through. Uh, they didn't know how long. None of us really knew how long. Um, and then they really needed to be be ready for that. I think that, you know, even now, uh, we don't really know how this new rule will play out. Um, and so I think that the administration did take efforts to prepare. Um, but I think that they they were still relying very heavily on Title 42. Um, and so seeing how this plays out in the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months is um, it's really anyone's guess at this point. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, people have been waiting and are now coming in greater numbers to various border cities for more favorable conditions to cross. I know there are people um, that are in Mexico and there are some people in cities in Texas. Can you kind of describe those conditions and what steps are they now waiting to take? I've heard a lot about the app. So what's your, you know, what 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 is this sort of like heralded app and uh, what sure. are, you know, what are people relying on it to do for them and where are they waiting? Sure. So a lot of people have come to cities in northern Mexico. Um, and previously, the app was used to process what are called Title 42 exemptions. And so people would need to apply um, and have some sort of vulnerability to then go to a port, be processed through, and then perhaps they would then apply for asylum in the interior. Uh, right now, that's sort of staying the same, although it's slightly different. Uh, of course, Title 42 isn't there anymore. Um, so CBP-1 app appointments have expanded from about between seven and 800 a day to about 1,000 a day. That doesn't necessarily mean that the full number are being processed, but that's the available appointments. And that's along the entirety of the U.S.-Mexico border. So now people are applying for just an appointment at a port of entry. They get to that appointment and then they are processed. Um, there's lots of different ways that people can be processed. There's lots of different documents that they can receive. I could nerd out about it all day, but essentially <laughs> at that point they're, they're processed. Um, yeah. and then, and then they, um, are maybe they're released and then, um, they would go on into the interior and then apply for asylum. So I think that there's a kind of a misconception that people are now having to apply for asylum through the app or something like that. Mm, okay. That's not, that's not the whole story behind it. Um, but the app is basically this. Um, the idea behind the app is that people are coming to ports of entry with the, these appointments. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so it, it doesn't entirely change much of what happened, although now people that do pass between ports of entry are subject to that presumption of ineligibility that I talked about a little mm -hmm. bit earlier. Um, and I think that it's important, too, to note uh, my colleagues and I were down at the U.S.-Mexico border a couple months ago, and we were able to go into Mexico, into some of the cities. Um, and I think it's really important to note the conditions there are really different than on the U.S. side. So along the U.S.-Mexico border, on either side, all of the cities kind of face different resource constraints. Um, but imagine 
the northern border city in Mexico is trying to do some sort of similar sort of arrival care for people, but with much, much less resources and a lot of different other complicating factors. Um, and so in Tijuana, for instance, on the other side of San Diego, um, there is quite a bit of shelter space. There's more NGOs involved, but they're still really functioning at or over capacity at this point. And then there's other places like Matamoros that's across from Brownsville and it's very South Texas. Um, and they have very little shelter space. And, and so in Matamoros and in Reynosa, another city sort of close by, um, the people are living in these temporary encampments. And so um, in a lot of ways, these Northern cities have become kind of a staging ground. And part of that is because the app um, only goes down to about Mexico City. And so, you know, why come all this way to just stop? People are, of course, making their way to the northern cities, so facing a lot of um, restraints there. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like neither government, you know, has an obligation to improve conditions for these people waiting, but fortunately there are NGOs and community members who are filling in the gaps there. Absolutely. NGOs, um, sometimes local governments um, are really uh, – really doing quite a lot. Um, and we we really saw this on, on both sides of the border, um, especially on the U.S. side. I think I could really speak to yeah. this kind of connective tissue that's formed um, between the government agencies, so Customs and Border Protection, the Border Patrol agents, or the Office of Field Operations. They're the ones that are at the ports. They've really created these networks with non-governmental organizations. None of them are formal, of course, but they've mm -hmm. all really worked together um, to make the process somewhat uh, more cohesive. Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. So what happens, you, you mentioned what happens now when somebody encounters border control or when somebody enters the country. How does this vary based on where they're coming from, or I guess more specifically their nationality? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a there's a lot of factors that go into to, uh, how someone how a migrant is processed once they interact with Border Patrol. So part of that is uh, where they're encountered. So if they're encountered um, between a port of entry, now, of course, they are subject to that rebuttable presumption or that presumption of eligibility, I should say. Um, but then there's also, you know, people at the ports are also going to be processed under these Title VIII codes. And so to give an example, um, the administration is hoping to increase the use of expedited re removal, which means that someone um, does not have the proper documents to be allowed into the country, um, and so they have to be returned to their country of origin. But in order to do that, uh, the U.S. and that country of origin have to have some sort of formal relationship where that country says, yes, we will accept repatriated nationals of our country. Uh, when we saw increases in Venezuelan numbers, for example, last summer and into the into the winter, um, the U.S. and Venezuela did not have an arrangement to accept repatriated nationals. And so that's why many Venezuelans were processed and then allowed into mm -hmm. the country. And so that kind of foreign, um, the foreign affairs, the connections between the governments have to be there. Um, and then there are some places where the U.S. knows that um, um that the conditions are not suitable and they don't want to send people back there. Um, the, the point of asylum is this fancy word called non, non refoulement. And so you you can't send people back to places where they may face harm. And so Haiti, for instance, is a country where, um, the U S does not want to be sending people back to Haiti because they know that right now conditions are not suitable, um, to right. repatriate people. And so nationality really, um, does play a role along with a lot of other factors. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, you know, there's a range of nationalities and people coming from countries with different conditions. I think a lot of people are familiar with individual and families and what is, you know, kind of the the push factors in Central and South America. But the regions of origin, um, I was listening to you and your colleagues on your podcast, they vary quite a bit, certainly quite a bit more than I necessarily, I might have taken for granted. Can you tell us how the diversity of migrants has increased and what factors might be contributing to this? Yeah, so um, we've seen a huge diversification of nationalities, and and that's really um, I'll plug this in here. That's really part of the the problem with our immigration system mm -hmm. is that it's it's built for arrivals that um, that it's built for a U.S. Mexico border that doesn't exist anymore. Ah. It's built for the arrival of largely single Mexican men, mm -hmm. um, and it's built for lower numbers of arrivals. And right now, what we're seeing is this big increase in 
nationalities, but also in uh, family, the, uh, the Customs and Border Protection term is family units. Um, so we're seeing more families come to the border. Um, you know, they're especially in the mid-teens, there was an increase in unaccompanied minors, and we are still seeing unaccompanied youth coming to the border. Um, and so there is this big diversification, and it's not just from the Western Hemisphere. So we've mm-hmm. seen an increase in Central Americans and South Americans, but you also have people coming from West, uh, Eastern Europe, you have people coming from Africa, you have people coming from Asia. And so uh, there's a lot of different factors. Some of it uh, is that after the COVID-19 pandemic, um, travel restrictions have loosened somewhat. And so people have more freedom of movement. Um, There's conflict and there's wars, there's economic hardship, there's violence, um, but there's also these really advanced smuggling networks and people are more connected than we've ever been. Mm -hmm. Um, No matter where you are in the world, you probably have some sort of social media. And so the ability to find out about these different routes, the ability for smuggling organizations to make use of that social media to move people. Um, And what we've seen is that the arrivals to the border sometimes follow these really interesting patterns where you'll see large numbers of a specific nationality show up at specific, what they're called as sectors, um, different areas along the Mm U.S.-Mexico border. And it's kind of puzzling. Why is that happening? And it's a lot of different reasons. I think that partly it's the smuggling organizations, um, the ability to kind of facilitate people, but it could also be things like flight patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen, we saw when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, um, Ukrainians were coming in mass to Tijuana across from San Diego and coming through there. Um, That may have just been that the best flight was to Baja California, and then they were able to make their way up. And so there's all these different factors, but I think uh, a lot of it is kind of the state of the world. Migration is happening all over the world. Um, There's a lot of different conflicts that are pushing or or pulling people. Um, But then there's also this increased connectivity and the ability to um, travel and move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that's so interesting that we're sort of having an immigration system that is designed for single men coming up from Mexico. And, you know, I think a lot of our listeners remember pretty hard images to look at um, of of families, um, you know, being separated and just really poor conditions, you know, remember certain periods um, in the prior administration. I think I think you mainly already touched on this, but just in case there's anything to kind of add, you know, what has been done in recent years to make people's processing experience, you know, more humane once they have encountered border control? I know we can't necessarily control the conditions on either side of the border before, but what about when they have, you know, interacted with us? Sure. So um, my colleagues and I were able to visit some of these um, places along the U.S.-Mex border that have been built in the last couple of years, um, and they're called soft-sided facilities. So these sort of like large tent-like facilities, um, and they're meant to be temporary structures, of yeah. course, but to handle larger numbers of people. Um, and I think that the biggest, there were a lot of takeaways, of course, but one of the biggest ones was that Border Patrol uh, uh, increasingly said every single place that we were able to meet with them, they said, we want to process people as quickly as possible. We don't want to be holding people in custody for um, longer than they need to be. And so um, they there are some ways in which I think that there have been efforts. Um, for example, we saw light dimmers um, so that the lights aren't staying on 24 hours a day, but are in fact dimmed somewhat um, during the nighttime just so that people can kind of sleep better. I mean, I'm I'm not sure of many people who like sleep with the lights on kind of thing. Yeah, Um, yeah. And then there's also uh, some of the places have like an outdoor recreation area, especially for kids. Um, So we could Mm -hmm. see kids, you know, playing soccer or whatnot. Um, All of them are equipped with um, contractors who offer medical care, food, etc. But it's still custody. Yeah. Um, And so people are still and there are also concerns of large numbers of people moving in and out of places. And so um, people are still using kind of those like thin mats with foil blankets, um, which is uh, is obviously not comfortable. But there's hygiene issues um, to, you know, otherwise have like full beds of mattresses, that kind of thing. Um, And so I think that to, you know, there's really no way to make custody not feel like custody. Um, But I think that there have been efforts towards trying to move people through that as quickly as possible and process them in the correct way for their individual case. Um, And then some efforts to make the the hours that are in custody, Mm -hmm. um, hopefully somewhat more manageable. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like er, there were times where, like you said, people are in custody, but 
the environment shouldn't be punitive <laughs> where mm-hmm. there were sort of, you know, those things like dimmers and just having people that are available, like making that process more pleasant, um, I'm sure makes a huge difference, especially for the the young people. So it seems like, you know, to me, it doesn't really seem like national political leaders are talking seriously about immigration policy reform. We kind of get some people that are talking about it, you know, a little bit recently when they want to tie things maybe to like debt limit or, or budgets, but we do still see a lot of them wield the issue politically. How do you think policymakers could just more effectively approach immigration policy? You know, I'm, if you were in a room with them, as I'm sure some of the times you and your colleagues are, what are you what are you saying? What are you saying? You know, we really need to orient ourselves in this direction right now. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people have said it and I'll repeat it because it's true. Congress has not passed meaningful immigration reform in decades. Um, and it's just become a more polarizing issue. Um, and immigration is really complicated and there are a lot of different facets to it. Um, For example, I focus a lot on the U.S.-Mexico border, but there's also um, big asylum backlogs to look at. There's also Mm -hmm. the legal immigration side of uh, visa backlogs. There's integration of how people are, um, you know, how they're received once they come into the U.S., their access to forms or medical Mm -hmm. care in their their language. So there's so many facets of it. Um, And I think that it sounds a little bit, simplistic and I don't mean it to, but I think that for a start, policymakers need to move beyond an all or nothing approach Mm. um, and really come from the standpoint that immigration is good for the United States. It's good for our economy. It makes, I mean, we all benefit from a more richly diverse place. It helps our schools. It helps our government. Um, Immigration is a good thing and, and it will never be stopped. And so I think that um, I think that getting out of the all or nothing approach and looking at it as more of a system um, rather than mm-hmm. sort of these uh, chaos narratives that yeah. we've been really yeah. prone to. Um, and it, it sounds, you know, not to overly simplify it, because I think that there's a lot of real concrete work that needs to be done. But a starting point would be kind of getting out of that all or nothing mentality and really learning to work together. And, mm-hmm. and you know, no one's ever going to be fully happy. Um, there's a lot of compromise that comes with making law. And I think that trying to find places to compromise that can still move the system forward, um, because, like I said, we're we're functioning on a system that doesn't work anymore. And um, conditions are only likely going to change more than they already have. And so uh, building a system that can really keep up with an evolving um, reality is what needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work at the Migration Policy Institute before we end? Absolutely. So we're a nonpartisan think tank. We're located in D.C., um, but we also have a European office. Um, I work on the U.S. immigration uh, policy program and I'm the research assistant for them. Um, So we, of course, are looking at following very closely what's Mm -hmm. happening on the U.S.-Mexico border. But we also talk about legal immigration, um, the the various visas um, that are involved in that. We follow litigation really closely. We also have teams that focus on Europe, Latin America and the Caribbean a team that focuses on immigrant integration, especially within the school systems, language Mm -hmm. access, community access. Um, So we're really trying to look at that whole scope of what immigration is and then also look at it really globally as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I know our listeners would love to check that out. Thank you so much, Colleen. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really great to speak. That is our show until the end of democracy. I'm Amanda Duberman. And for Millie Tamarez, this is the Betchisa Podcast. Bye. The Betchisa Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales Pico, and Rebecca Sousmacat. Editing by Rebecca Sousmacat. Social media by Amanda Duberman and Bridget Swartz. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails at SUPPod at Betches.com. Betches.